0: Ian Lacey and welcome to this first edition of my history podcast. We've just heard the 11 strikes of Big Ben, an integral part of the Remembrance Sunday commemorations at the Cenotaph every November. Over the next half now we will be exploring remembrance of war. We will be looking at the historical development of remembrance, who was included and who was marginalised from the process, the First World War Centenary commemorations and what remembrance means today including for younger generations. You're welcome to share your comments about the podcast. You can contact me via my blog site, ian-lacy.com or on Twitter at ian underscore lacy. I will repeat the contact details at the end of the podcast. We all have our views on remembrance and many of us will have more personal and family connections to war and conflict. I was particularly influenced by a book, written by Neil Oliver in 2005, called Not Forgotten, which accompanied a Channel 4 series of the same name. I became aware that Remembrance was not just about the hundreds of thousands of servicemen who died in the theatres of war. It was also about the servicemen who returned from the war and about the civilians, men, women and children, impacted by the conflict. In 2014, I went on a tour of some of the First World War battlefields and cemeteries in France and Belgium. For three of our group, the tour was deeply personal. We visited the grave of Sarah's third cousin, the memorial where Derek's uncle was listed as one of the missing, and a cemetery where the fallen Irish comrades of Alison's father now laid at rest. Three people, three different kinds of remembrance. It was a pointed reminder that, for many of us, we were only here today because our direct relatives came back from war. To find out more about Remembrance, I recently interviewed Dr Edward Madigan from Royal Holloway University of London and Alice Pearson from the Household Cavalry Museum. Due to the UK government's Covid lockdown rules in place at the time, these interviews were conducted virtually and as you'll discover they both shared some professional and at times highly personal insights. In the first half we hear from Dr Edward Madigan. Edward has been a Senior Lecturer in Public History at Royal Holloway University of London since 2013 and is Director of their MA in Public History programme. He is an expert on the First World War and has a special interest in remembrance. For the two years prior to joining Royal Holloway, Edward was the first ever Resident Historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. I started by asking Edward to give us a historical perspective how and when remembrance of war as we know it today developed
1: the origins ian of um modern remembrance culture in britain across europe elsewhere remembrance of war really fascinating intriguing sort of question i remember one of the first books i read that touched on the great war that really struck me you know that really sort of um inspired me if if you like as a as a youngster i I was I that young i was probably in my teens anyway late teens I read um, John Keegan's The Face of Battle. And I'm pretty sure it was this book anyway. He, he mentions, it was either Keegan or, or one of the books I read as a teenager. There's a reference, and it's a sort of a passing reference to the fact that in the years and decades after the Napoleonic Wars, the dead of great battlefields, such as Austerlitz and Waterloo, were disinterred. Their bones were crushed and they were sold as fertilizer. And I remember thinking, God, that's, that's extraordinary. I mean, that's, that <laughs> that's incredible in and of itself, but especially incredible retrospectively now that we have this extraordinary, you might even say inordinate reverence and respect for the dead. And then later on, I joined the commission and I kind of thought that's probably apocryphal. That sounds a little bit far-fetched. I haven't seen good research on it. But then later on again, someone drew my attention to newspaper reports, I believe from the 1820s, that that referenced the sale of fertilizer in the north of England by major companies. And and what they'd done was they had, they'd essentially harvested the dead. So so what does that tell us? It tells us that in the early 19th century, ordinary rank and file soldiers, and of course, junior officers. I mean, we have to accept that all combatants were sort of um, included in this, this ill treatment they were, their victories were well regarded. There was a certain glamour in military service in Britain, more so I would say in continental Europe, but certain glamour in naval service and in army service, particularly the cavalry, but the dead were not, were, were not privileged in any particular way in terms of communal or national memorialization. So you would see uh, monuments and statues to great generals, you know I grew up in Dublin, where there's an enormous obelisk to Wellington in the Phoenix Park. Now that dates from much later in the nineteenth century, but it's there, and you know cities like London are festooned with memorials to the um the generals and the admirals, of course, in the case of Nelson, who directed these things. But the ordinary rank and file soldiers and the junior officers, you know they they weren't buried with reverence or respect or remembered with reverence and respect. This changes over the course of the century.
0: I asked Edward to expand upon the changes that took place in the late 19th century.
1: So I think two things happened towards the end of the 19th century that are relevant to the emergence of what comes later. Firstly, there's a kind of a civic commemorative culture that emerges during the late Victorian period. So some of um, Queen Victoria's um, jubilee moments are commemorated 1887 1897 at a civic level there's a community level so districts of major cities and then big towns or smaller cities say so, well, well these events have to be marked if we don't mark them it's a kind of we're we're, we're letting we're, it's, it's a stain on civic pride that, that's already happening in the late 19th century then there's the outbreak of the, the second south african war what we still call the boer war And this is a key turning point, I think, in commemoration of the the dead, of war dead, as opposed to memory of war. And I think commemoration of those who died in the Boer War foreshadowed that of the Great War in in many ways. So the scale, of course, is smaller, but that's only in retrospect. At the time, the Boer War for for British people was, British and Irish people, was a a major conflict. you know, about two hundred thousand recruits were raised in response to the war, just during the first couple of months of nineteen hundred, January, February, March, nineteen hundred. Uh, in addition to the regular army, it was a popular volunteering movement, which, you know, has some echoes then in nineteen fourteen and nineteen fifteen. But crucially, in terms of remembrance of the dead, we see lists of the dead on memorials, in Britain, in and in Ireland. I mean, again, I, I'll, I'll reference Dublin. In, the Stephen, in Stevens Green in Dublin, which is the kind of park in the center of the city, there is an enormous memorial arch in the entrance to the park. Now, it later became known as Traitor's Gate because the, the, the men who are remembered on it served in the British Army, but they were the rank and file and the junior officer corps of, of the Dublin Fusiliers. This predates the First World War by at least a decade. So, you know, these things don't spring up from nothing during and after the Great War. There is a culture of civic commemoration already in existence, from at least the Victorian period. And then there is, dating back to the time of the Boer War, there is an established custom, tradition, culture of acknowledging rank and file soldiers, acknowledging their sacrifices publicly.
0: Edward talked about remembering those who died in battle, but what about the civilians who also died as a result of conflict, including children? And those who fought and returned, but were often physically or mentally scarred. I asked Edward how these groups of people fitted into the remembrance process after the First World War.
1: Well, I think from a formal point of view or an official point of view, they, they're really not, they don't fit in at all. They're not incorporated. So, in the commemorative culture that emerges in Britain in the aftermath of the First World War, there is an exclusive focus on the dead. So the dead are remembered arguably at the expense of those who served but survived and yet were directly impacted by the extraordinary violence of the war. So men who served during the war but were psychologically traumatized or physically disabled or both, women who served in the armed forces and often um experience psychological trauma and then finally the bereaved themselves they're not they're, they're not remembered now a lot of that makes sense of course in the 1920s because these are the people doing the remembering these are the people who are driving and shaping the commemorative culture so they're not remembering themselves if you like so there's a sense in which at a, the level of charities and to some degree at the level of the government and the royal british legion veterans are um catered to looked after addressed their issues are addressed but of course that's given the vast number and the um you know uh, myriad of problems they're facing and challenges they're facing in the 1920s that's that's inadequate but in terms of memory and commemoration the focus is exclusively on the dead and in some ways that makes sense in the 1920s and 30s i would say however that it makes a lot less sense a hundred years later when our focus should be sure on remembrance and commemoration, but more importantly, at least from the perspective of a historian should be on understanding, understanding the impact of this conflict should I think involve reflecting on not just the dead but on those who survived the war but whose lives were torn apart or at least affected by the extraordinary violence of the conflict. So the bereaved, the psychologically traumatized, the disabled, and so forth. Finally,
0: I asked Edward what remembrance of war means to him.
1: Um well that's a personal question in, in some ways. I I think my feelings about remembrance and commemoration have evolved to a degree over the years. My initial interest in it, you know, uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I was looking at it as I suppose, as a cultural critic, as a, as a historian primarily, but also as an Irishman, as someone who, you know, comes from a particular culture nationally, and in terms of historical allegiance and, and, and these sorts of questions. I was very heartened, I think, maybe naively, and in retrospect, probably I was naive, by the um, way in which memory of this war, of which I was a scholar, uh, was being used in a positive way to build bridges in in our own time. Now, I suppose, I think about it in a more abstract way. Like many historians, like many students of history, I'm drawn to the past because I'm interested in human endeavor. And I'm interested in the drama and the um, colour of human interaction and human societies, human ritual, human relationships. And for me, that's where commemoration and remembrance become interesting. You know, when i see people in britain wearing poppies every november well i mean every october it's a good six weeks before Remembrance remember it sunday i think at its most benign and positive what those people are doing is expressing solidarity with the suffering of their ancestors and to me that's very interesting it's very when it's sincere it's very intriguing it's very revealing and it can be quite positive. What's been troubling though is, and look, Brexit is an element in this, but it's not, it, this. It, you know, this would be the case, I think, with or without Brexit. Um, the degree to which remembrance of the dead of the war, it's, it's not simply that it doesn't involve understanding, it's almost against understanding. So during the centenaries and more recently, I think in Britain and Ireland, to a degree, across Europe and elsewhere, we see a lot of remembering with a capital R, but very little understanding or very little will to understand the complexity, the nuance, the the sheer color and diversity of the world in, in which our ancestors lived and died. Thanks to Edward for
0: taking the time to speak with me. for sharing such fascinating insights. Edward set out the historical context of remembrance, how some groups became marginalised and crucially the difference between remembrance and understanding. Offering a different perspective my second guest is Alice Pearson. Alice comes from a military family and has been director of the Household Cavalry Museum in London since 2016. Alice's main role is public engagement. To do this Alice and the museum Have to follow the school year and the military calendar. Tourism is also important because any profits generated by the museum go to the Household Cavalry Foundation, which supports soldiers from the regiment in their later years. I asked Alice what role the museum played in remembrance.
2: One of the biggest days of our soldiers' year, and I'm talking from the the soldiers based in London on the ceremonial side, is a weekend in November that's Remembrance Weekend, and it's also the Lord Mayor's show weekend. They tend to coincide, and if not, they're on one weekend after each other. Remembrance Weekend is huge for us because our soldiers march in in the Remembrance uh, Ceremony that happens on the Whitehall, marching past the Cenotaph and the Royal Family is hugely important for us. Uh, I, somewhat ironically, the museum is closed during that service, um, so all of the work that we do is surrounding that week. And for the last several years, we've worked with local schools in the borough of Westminster, and it's one of one of the projects we're most proud of. We have up to 300 school children come in in the week's either side of Remembrance, and it's part of a larger project uh, with uh, with Westminster Abbey and with Brompton Cemetery. And the children in the local area learn a lot about one topic every year is chosen. They learn a lot about that topic. And the topics we've chosen in the last few years have been linked to the centenary of World War One. And the reason we do that is because the the, the word 100 years is quite emotive for people. And for a child to understand what it was like for someone 100 years ago is a big learning experience. We're very proud to be involved in this um, because we've been told that it makes a big difference to the children to meet a serving soldier. And our part in the project is to bring the children to the museum, show them what we do, what we did 100 years ago, and then we bring in a soldier. And I absolutely love it because we do the official introduction, we give them all the information, and then we let the children ask their own questions. And coming from a military family myself, I sometimes forget how exciting it would be to meet somebody who you've never met anyone like that before. And the one we did most recently, a soldier marched in in their full uniform and the children were sitting on the floor as if it was a school assembly and they physically leaned backwards and their jaws fell open. They were so in awe of this soldier. And it was a wonderful thing to see because although the soldier was an impressive figure, by the end of the 10 minutes of chat, The kids were just so comfortable with him. And they were asking him questions about what he had for breakfast and uh, what his mum thought of his job. And it really was a huge learning experience for them in in only a few short minutes. And that's one of the things that we really loved doing. Um, The fact that it was focused around a period of remembrance gives them an understanding that every person they learn about in history was a human with their own story. And hopefully that gives them an understanding that these large figures and I mean numbers, the millions of people we read about in textbooks, every single person is a human being and everyone has their own story and I hope that that's what the children learn when, when they come and come and visit us.
0: Building on the theme of everyone having their own story, I asked Alice about how the museum works with members of the regiment and their families.
2: The museum is a really interesting part of the regiment. The regiment itself is very london and windsor based so a lot of our families even if the soldiers come from all over the country and all over the commonwealth a huge proportion of those uh, soldiers settle in the area so we try and be a hub for those soldiers when they come back we are part of a larger team we are the household cavalry museum there's also associations that keep in touch with the veterans and a very important charity called the household cavalry foundation and it's their job to stay in touch with veterans we are a physical place where people can come, but we're, we're only one small part of the whole cocoon that takes part, uh, takes care of a soldier from whenever they sign up uh, to when they become a veteran and onwards. Um, we do have, a, very sadly, we have a memorial wall, and we've got a copy of that in the museum, and it's always available for families to come in and remember their loved ones and any association they had with the regiment. One of the museum's jobs is to be available for families as a physical location where they can come to. But a lot of the things that the museum takes part in and the associations and the regiment as a whole are occasions and events such as Remembrance Day, which is something for everybody. But in the month of May, we have a very important event. Um, We call it CAV MEM because if there's any words that exist, the army will shorten them and, and make nicknames for them. It's a Cavalry Memorial Day. And it's in the month of May, and it's a very important day for us. It is a Sunday. We meet in the park, rain or shine, and we have a service for all the cavalry uh, soldiers that have come before us. And we do a very special end section to that for just the Household Cavalry, where we go over uh, to the Hyde Park corner bombing memorial site and lay a wreath there. So as well as the remembrance period, we also have our May period as well.
0: I then asked Alice about the First World War centenary commemorations between 2014 and 2018 and what impact they made on how we view remembrance.
2: Uh, For me personally studying history at school, um, it was the school classroom that drove into me that we should never forget and the reason that that was important to me as a as a as a youth was it was important that nothing like that ever happened again but I think if you look at history it can prove slightly cyclical and things do happen after a certain time has passed so i think it's not just the centenary events that are important it's the ongoing learning that is important i wouldn't in any way say that the centenary events in england didn't make an impact i think they were very important especially the inclusion of um social media and the day-to-day influence on people's lives this symbol of the poppy is very important and i think these big dates, you know, 100 years, 125 years, 75 years, they are a reason for people to have the conversation again. But I think between those big dates, it's important to to remember what happened. And the reason I point out England specifically is I went on a battlefield tour with the Hassel cavalry associations. And in Belgium, it's a very different experience. Um, in Belgium, there are graves as far as the eye can see in certain places and they are part of the local psyche they are cared for by school children and every day at eight o'clock at the men gate there is the last post played and everyone comes out of the bar and, and and looks at the last post ceremony and goes back in and it's something that's a daily reminder without being morose it's it's bittersweet and it's very beautiful and i think we could do more as a country to embed it in our day-to-day psyche um but of course, the situation of Belgium is very unique in, in their physical location. So there are different things that can be done, um, and I think if anyone has an interest in it, there are there are options available. I know the Commonwealth War Graves do a wonderful job. A lot of history courses do. A lot of museums do, um, and it's there if people are are interested in it. It is incredible. I think physic- like physically being in a location and learning about something is, is an incredible experience that everybody should do. And I do think students in the UK should go on battlefield tours. There's so much you can learn. Um, I was lucky enough to go with the associations, and I <laughs> must say that it was a very military approach. It was precision. Uh, the Logistics was precision organized. The tours were absolutely fabulous and as soon as each tour was open, the conversation continued into the bar. And when I said to somebody there, it's a little in- inappropriate that we're back in a bar after being on a, on a battlefield front, they said, we're cheersing on the lads and this is what they would be happy for us to do. And it just really struck me as quite an emotional thing. Um, yeah, I'd recommend anyone go.
0: Finally, I asked Alice about what remembrance means to her personally.
2: Well, I'm lucky enough to have seen uh, remembrance services in different forms and in different parts of the world. Um, But to me, as I said uh, earlier, I think a battlefield tour is very important experience for anybody. And when I was there, unbeknownst to me, how I feel about remembrance really was summed up in an epitaph I saw. Um, And very sadly, the soldier that was underneath the epitaph, I don't believe he had a name and it always, stayed with me and remembrance to me is what it said on his grave and what it said on his grave was he died fighting for God and right and liberty and such death is immortality and I think that's what remembrance means to me.
0: Thank you to Alice for sharing her both her professional and personal experiences of remembrance. You may have picked up from Alice's voice at the end there just how much this topic means to her. Over the course of this podcast we have covered various aspects of remembrance. Edward discussed the historical roots of remembrance as we know it today, those who are included and those who have been marginalised, and the sheer complexity of the topic including the difference between remembrance and understanding. From Alice we heard about what remembrance means to school children, to serving soldiers and their families, and to her personally. As I mentioned earlier, please do let me have your thoughts about what we have discussed, either via my blog site, ian-lacey.com, or on Twitter at ian underscore lacey. Once again, many thanks to Edward Madigan and Alice Pearson. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, which has been produced as part of my postgraduate studies in public history at Royal Holloway, University of London. We will play out with the last post. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. All uh-huh. right.